0: My name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. When I was in the beginning stage of coming to know God personally, I began to learn many things through the Bible. But I was interpreting what the Bible was saying according to what I believed to be true. As I continued to grow in faith, I began to fix those wrong interpretations that I had in the beginning. One of the things that I interpreted wrong in the beginning stages of my faith was that since I believed in God now, all the troubles in my life would be fixed and nothing wrong would happen in my life in the future. That's why when I happened to hear stories of people getting into car accidents on their way to church or someone of great faith being diagnosed with a fatal disease, I couldn't understand why those bad things happened. I couldn't understand why someone that volunteered their time at church had their business go bankrupt. I began to question their faith and thought maybe their faith was not strong enough. If I think about it now, I am so embarrassed that I even had those thoughts. However, I am so thankful that I was able to fix all these misunderstandings by reading and studying the Bible. We will continue our discussion after the first song. In the Bible, who always gives me the encouragement and helps me learn more about God? It is Joseph. He is introduced in Genesis chapter 37. He received so much love from his father Jacob, but all that love led to his brothers hating and being jealous of him. One day, when Joseph's brothers had the chance, they decided to kill him. This is where the hardships in Joseph's life began. Joseph went through many hardships, but was able to stay alive. What must have gone through Joseph's mind when all those unfair things happened to him? What did Joseph think when his brothers tried to murder him and dropped him into a hole in the ground? What did Joseph think when his brothers sold him to the Midianite traders who were passing by? And the rest of his story we know from the Bible. Joseph became a slave under the captain of the palace guard, Potiphar, and was sent to prison unfairly because Potiphar's wife falsely accused him. Joseph denied Potiphar's wife's advances so that he would not sin against God, but that only led to him being thrown into prison. If I was Joseph, I would have complained that nothing was going right in my life and that my life was full of disappointments. While in prison, Joseph probably complained, what is the point of trying to stay true before God? It only leads to more hardship. But if you look at Genesis closely, there is a word that stands out that describes the life of Joseph. The word is, prosper. Chapter 39 of Genesis uses the word success to describe Joseph. Verse 2 says, The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. Verse 3 says that Potiphar saw that the Lord caused all that Joseph did to prosper. Verse 23 says that even after Joseph was sent to jail unfairly, God was with him and whatever Joseph did, God made to prosper. What does the word prosper mean? What does it mean to be successful? It means to have everything work out the way you planned and hoped for. You can ask, how is being sold as a slave, taken to a different country, and being sent to prison unfairly the way you wanted things to go? How can you possibly describe that as being successful or even prospering? That's right. This prosper depends on from whose point of view you are looking and whose plan it follows. In Joseph's eyes, all the hardships that he went through probably did not seem to be successful or lead to any kind of prosperity in his life. But in all-knowing and powerful God's eyes, all things were going according to plan. All those things caused Joseph to prosper. Often, we concentrate on the bad things that happen in our lives. We're quick to complain about how these kinds of things happen to us but if we all take a step back and look at the big picture, we can think about why God is making us go through all this and we are better able to understand God's purpose and will for our lives. Understanding all this leads to us having faith. We have faith that we will prosper through God. Through this kind of faith, you will be able to confess what it says in Psalms chapter 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Jesus and Blindness based on Mark chapter 7 verses 31 through chapter 8 verse 21. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua.
1: this morning as we are back in Mark's gospel. We're right in the middle of the amazing true story. Jesus has been doing some incredible things. Heal the sick, uh, even in one point raised the dead. He has cast out thousands of demons from one man. Uh, We've also seen Jesus go dog whisper on a storm. Uh, There is no one like Jesus with the kind of authority that he has over all things. And yet this morning what we find is As it is, we have been viewing, kind of like the audience, these disciples and their experiences with Jesus, we find that despite all of those amazing eyewitness accounts that they had to the work of Christ, still yet, uh, they are hard to what Jesus is teaching and about who Jesus is. We are actually going to find a transition in the book of Mark. Uh, Jesus is about to turn his back on his ministry to the the Galilee uh, area, and he's going to start his movement towards the cross in Jerusalem. And so this is a a very pivotal point in the book of Mark. And what we're going to see here as he begins to move towards Jerusalem is a really important fact that was, I think, important uh, 2,000 years ago when Jesus was speaking to his people and something that's important to us today. And that's this, that hard hearts need a miracle on the inside not the outside, to see Jesus. Hard hearts need a miracle on the inside, not the outside, to see Jesus. Uh, That's our main point that we're going to be exploding this morning and and looking at. So let me begin uh, this morning as we're considering our need as a people who have hard hearts left to ourselves. uh, Why don't we pray together as an expression, almost a confession of our neediness before God. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we come before you and your word, We confess that your word is true, and it tells us that left to ourselves, our hearts are hard, impenetrable to your word. And so, God, we know something to be true. We know that we actually need you, yourself, through the power of your Holy Spirit to help us. Father, our hearts are fragile and weak. Uh, Lord, though they might be considered to be one of the strongest substances on earth, at the same time, we are a fragile people and breakable. And many of us broken. And so God, we need to hear afresh from your word this morning. We ask that you would help us to have eyes to see, ears to hear, and understanding as we look to understand your word. And it's in the great name of your son, Jesus, that we do pray. Amen. Well, this morning, as we open up, we're going to begin with our first point, which is this. Jesus cures a man who's physically deaf. And you find that in verses 31 to 37. And we're going to look at those verses again. So look there with me in Mark 7. Verses 31 to 37. Here's here's what happens. It says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre, and he went through uh, Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more that he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute to speak. We're right back in the non Jewish area of the Decapolis. So Jesus is surrounded by Gentiles, when people brought a deaf man with a speech impediment to Jesus, begging Jesus to touch him. We don't know if this was simply a speech impediment in the, in the sense that he could not speak clearly or that he could not speak at all, but he has some kind of trouble with communication and with hearing, and they're probably connected. Uh, take note that Jesus literally puts his fingers in this man's ears. Catch the sequence. And then we're told he spits on them. And then he touches the man's tongue. Next, he looks up to heaven showing that this healing that he's about to perform is actually divine. And that Jesus isn't stiff-necked, right? He's able to look up to heaven where he knows his help is coming from. And and finally, it says that he sighed and said to this man, "Ephatha," that is, be opened. And immediately he heard and he could speak. Now, maybe if you've been following the stories of Jesus, you're wondering why all the theatrics. I mean, sometimes he just gives a word and someone is healed, or he touches someone and they're healed. There's a lot of commentaries that have been written on this, and I don't really honestly know the answer. But, but here's my guess my guess is you have a man who cannot hear. And Jesus is on the fly creating sign language so that he understands exactly what it is that he's doing for this man. So in a sense, it seems like it's almost Jesus condescending to help this man know exactly what it is that the plan is. Many uh, have seen uh, a number of things here, but I like to think that here uh, what we see is, is that um, he had witnessed Something miraculous. And I like to think that as this crowd would have witnessed this miraculous healing, that I would listen to whatever that person who did that thing had to say. I'd like to think of myself that way, usually because i like to think of myself being better than others. Are you like that? Like maybe we wouldn't confess to it, but in actuality, that's sort of what we do. That's our default setting. But check out what happens in verses 36 to 37. While you might think that you would do exactly what he said, Here's what it says happened immediately after this healing. Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. I mean, here we see once again on display the messianic secret, right? Jesus does something and says, don't tell anybody who I am. Maybe you're thinking well, I kind of understand their disobedience here. I mean, Jesus' command to be quiet really should just be chalked up, their disobedience, to just excitement. They're excited about Jesus. So, you know, if you're excited about something, like, we get leeway to just kind of do whatever we want, right? And that's exactly what we find happening here with these folks. They, they're doing whatever they want. And commentary, commentator R.T. France, he says something interesting. He says, you know, I wouldn't just chalk this up to excitement. He says, the words for Jesus charging them to be quiet, actually give the picture of Jesus giving a protracted appeal for silence and an equally protracted disobedience. So here's the irony I I see here in this story. This is fascinating. Jesus gave a deaf man ability to hear, and the crowds respond by not hearing Jesus. The crowd praises Jesus' ability to give hearing to the deaf while turning a deaf ear to the voice of Jesus. I mean, this physical healing, I believe, I believe it reveals their spiritual sickness and inability to hear the voice of Jesus. Hearing, they do not understand. And there's an enthusiasm for Jesus here doesn't lead to obedience. Do you see it? There's enthusiasm, disobedience, and they're, they're right together. It looks like they're excited about Jesus, and yet at the same time, they will not listen to Jesus. I think there's a lot that we could spend time on here thinking through practical applications. I mean, one, of course, I believe we need to think corporately about local churches. I think local churches need to be careful about this. Uh, as, I, as I look at, at other churches as a pastors, I'm constantly trying to think about how we can encourage all of us together to love Jesus more and to serve him and to be obedient. Um, we need to think about what it is that we're doing together. I've noticed that so many churches aim at providing an emotionally charged experience. Getting people really excited about Jesus without ever addressing our need to repent of disobedience to God or their need to turn from their sin. What's interesting to me is is that what we have here is I believe a a very early picture of this kind of vision of the people of God where we are so concerned about physical things that we do not pay attention to spiritual things. Uh, We need to hear, and he has said that it's important that we know that we are sinners before a righteous God. I think that we can do this individually as well. Um, You know, I I don't know if you've ever experienced this uh, in your life. You probably have. You probably are like this in some ways and know people that are like this in some ways. Uh, But you probably have friends that follow something that I would call mullet Christianity. You know, mullet like the haircut? That's a great haircut. But basically, you know, it's got a, a pretty good definition of being all business up front and a party in the back, right? Well, isn't that kind of like what these Christians look like? I mean, they're like, yeah, like this is, we're serious about Jesus and singing. And, and then it comes to obedience, and it's like, and we don't listen to anything that Jesus says. We do whatever we want. We party like mom and dad are gone. And this is exactly the kind of Christianity that these folks have. The problem is it's no kind of true Christianity according to Jesus. Uh, 1 John 5.3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not a burden to us. See, if our enthusiasm, if our enthusiasm and our excitement ignore sin and obedience, then we must be excited about something else, like being excited. We need to be excited about Jesus. And, and I believe that if we are truly excited and enthusiastic in a biblical kind of way, truly enthusiastic about Jesus, then it will always propel obedience. That's what it does. If we're excited about Christ, we're excited about listening to His voice. That is exactly, I believe, what Jesus would commend to these believers or these folks who did not listen to his voice. See, trying to warm our hearts to God without repenting of our sins, friends, it will only harden our hearts to the voice of Jesus. It will become harder and harder to joyfully sing to your Savior or to listen to his word preached and to pray. Hard hearts are impenetrable to the word of God. But there's a second thing that we see in our text. And that's that these disciples, they have hard hearts, is evidenced by their poor memories. Uh, Look at that in verses uh, 8, 1 to 10 that was read just before I started preaching. You'll remember in Mark 6, we read about Jesus feeding 5,000. And this story is is very much like a twin with many similarities, but also some differences as well. We're going to think about some of those similarities and differences But I love the picture. This section follows up a Syrophoenician woman, as you'll remember, who asked for crumbs from Jesus. And here we see him providing the Gentiles with loaves. He's visiting a Gentile people here. He was visiting Jews in the other one. Here he's with Gentiles, and he is giving them much bread out of his compassionate heart. But just think about this for a minute. Jesus' compassion drives him to feed 4,000 Gentiles in Mark 8, verses 1 to 10. And then, here we find that he feeds 4,000 Gentiles bread and fish from heaven, just like he did for the 5,000 Jewish men. Now, the disciples' question to Jesus in verse 4, I think, is fascinating. Uh, Look what he says. He he asks in verse 4, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? So Jesus is asking them to feed them, and they're like, How are we going to do something like that? This question, I think, would sound entirely rational coming from anyone who had not seen Jesus heal the sick, stop storms, raise the dead, and, oh, by the way, feed 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish just two chapters ago. If they had not experienced those things, the question makes total sense. The problem is they did experience all of those things and more. They've forgotten about who Jesus is. See, Jesus seems to try to jog their memory, and he does this by asking them the exact same question in the exact same way that he asked them back in Mark chapter 6. Uh, you'll notice in Mark six thirty eight, basically quotes it again here and asks them in response, well, how many loaves do you have? And I think it was probably somewhat of him trying to control himself not to add in this time right? We've done this. And there are a few times, a few differences here with Mark 6 and the way that this unfolds. You know, here, as I said before, he feeds 4,000 Gentiles. There he fed 5,000 Jews. Uh, Here, you'll remember that he begins with seven loaves and ends with seven baskets. There he began with five loaves and ended up with 12 baskets. And so we see a number of differences. There Jesus taught, here he doesn't. But I think it's the similarities that really tell the tale of the disciples' inability to remember who Jesus is. See, they've had front row seats to every miracle, and they are still startled by Jesus' repeat performance. Like, I've never seen this before. I think you have. And here the disciples, I believe, remind uh, me of a lot of us. Also, kind of reminds me a little bit of a game that I love to play with babies. Any here like like love playing with babies? Like, are they not fun? Okay, a few of you. The rest of you we need to talk. But when we look at babies, it's fascinating because uh, I love this game called Peekaboo. Y'all ever played Peekaboo with a baby? I love the game. It's fascinating. What you do is, if you haven't played, um, you can stick this in your repertoire. You basically stick your hands in front of your face and you hide your eyes from their eyes, right? And then all of a sudden you suddenly remove it and you say, "peekaboo." But usually they like laugh, right? They get really excited and they laugh about what just happened. And then here's the fun thing. You do it all over again, right? And you like you do it for hours. And it's like they're freshly shocked and amazed every time. And you're like, you're still not getting this? It's still me, <laughs> right? And I feel like the disciples are a lot like that. Like they keep on seeing Jesus do the same stuff over and over again. And they're like, oh man, Like, we don't got bread. Jesus, what are we going to do? I wish we knew somebody who knew how to, I don't know, miraculously make bread. I think it's because there is a human condition. We all struggle with a hardness of heart where we are prone and quick. We are quick to forget all kinds of things, including the grace of God and the goodness of Jesus and who he is. That we need constant reminders of who Christ is and who we are in Christ. We need those constant reminders because we are prone to be forgetful. All of us. It's not an IQ thing. We're just all by nature prone to forgetfulness. See, God's people have always struggled with remembering who Jesus is and who we are in Christ. I love the hopefulness, and you might not get this, but what Paul says, Philippians 3.1, he tells them, rejoice in the Lord. And then this little phrase, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it is safe to you. Now why do you think that he says it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and it's safe for you? Why do you think that is? I think it's because he understands that he has already told them these things. And yet patiently, Paul comes back and reminds them yet again of the grace of God and what it looks like to be obedient to the grace of God. Doesn't that look so much like Jesus with the disciples? So patient. Okay, we're doing this again. I'm going to show up. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to teach you again. I'm going to be patient. See, Paul is happy to, be, to patiently remind these Christians yet again who Christ is and what that means for everyday life. All of life is about Jesus. If you make your life about Jesus, it's hard to forget about him. And that's a community project. So you will not remember who Jesus is by yourself. That is why is, God has given you a local church. It is because you need a community of people who are constantly pointing you towards Christ so that you never forget. And not only that, God is calling you to constantly point others towards Christ so that they don't forget. When We gather week after week, morning after morning. As we gather Sunday after Sunday, we are singing songs where we are verbally reminding one another with our voices who God is, who Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is, who we are in Christ so that we can go out and live a life that honors Jesus and then come back and be reminded of who he is yet again. That is exactly what God has called us to. So let me just encourage you this morning to treat attending church faithfully as necessary for your memory of Christ and who you are. You need to come to church as though you understand that you are constantly in danger of forgetting who Jesus is. And it is so easy. We are naturally improned in our hearts to becoming self absorbed, struggling with what Paul Tripp calls meism. We are about me, myself, and I. And we are naturally geared that way in the flesh. And so all kinds of things can distract us and our hearts from Christ so that we need to be drawn back to remembering who he is. You know, we become too self-absorbed in our hobbies, our jobs, our relationships, social media, and even suffering. When my world comes becomes about me and I forget Jesus and his desires, then I am in a bad place. So brothers and sisters, let us constantly be about the business of reminding ourselves of who Christ is, lest we forget. But there's a third thing that we see here, and that's this. The Pharisees were blind to what they needed most. In Mark, in verses 11 to 13, where Jesus turns his attention to the Pharisees, they show up again, and that's always fun, isn't it? Well, here's what it says. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, being Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got in the boat, and he went to the other side. Now you'll remember that Jesus sighed before, back in chapter 7 where we began. But here he sighs deeply, and I don't want us to miss the weight of that. See, the Pharisees are the legalistic human equivalent of a wet blanket who are no fun at parties, right? We've seen that. Anytime Jesus does something amazing and people are excited about Jesus, the Pharisees show up to ruin it, right? They, they tell everybody about the fact that they think they shouldn't believe, and they cause problems. And they are constantly asking Jesus for a sign. I think the Pharisees here represent really Jews at this time. We know from Paul, uh, he tells us in 1 Corinthians one twenty-two to 22-24, about their desire for the signs, the the preoccupation with looking for signs. He says there in 1 Corinthians one twenty two. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks, they seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God makes sense, to be fair, why Jews would have been seeking signs. You'll remember when great men of the Old Testament showed up, they usually came along with miraculous signs. So Moses came, and you remember that he performed a number of miracles that showed that he truly was sent of God. Uh, You also remember Elijah, the man who raised a child from the dead and then prayed down fire from heaven. Great men of God have often come with signs. So maybe you're wondering, though, as you hear this, why are they asking Jesus for a sign? I mean, what kind of sign was it that they needed? Did they really need him to, like, I don't know, raise somebody from the dead or something? Wait a minute. Didn't he just do that? So as we think about this, we know that Jesus performed a number of miracles, including raising somebody from the dead, Jairus' daughter he raised her from the dead after she had been dead. Now, here's what's interesting. Some say here that the Pharisees are actually asking for an apocalyptic sign, that we're looking for a specific kind of sign, maybe a blood moon or something like that, or an earthquake. Others argue that the Pharisees conveniently missed every miracle that Jesus ever performed and didn't believe he actually performed any miracles or signs. Uh, Of course, I, I think that's hard to believe, because we know just back in Mark 3, 22, that we are told they did see that Jesus cast out demons. The argument wasn't whether or not they saw it and it happened. The question was, by which power did he do this? So I believe that they've seen that Jesus has done signs. The question for them is, where did they come from? So here, Jesus could have given them a sign in response to their question, or even an apocalyptic sign. But here Jesus, catch this, he ends his ministry in Galilee with a deep sigh of disappointment over their unresponsive, hard hearts towards his ministry. And it looks like the Pharisees have won all of Galilee, this generation that he speaks of, to their position. So this is where Jesus is going to make a big transition and start moving towards Jerusalem, uh, towards his death. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, why didn't Jesus give them a sign? He could have just given them a sign. Well, I think it's because he knew the hardness of their hearts. And he knew that they actually needed a greater sign. In fact, if you read the same story in Mark chapter 12 and Luke 11, uh, there uh, they add uh, one more statement. And he said, we're not going to give you a sign except the sign of Jonah. Who was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights before he was raised up. And in the same way, he says, uh, the son who has come will be in the earth for three days and three nights before he is raised up. And that's the sign that you're going to get. Of course, we know that that something greater than Jonah was actually a someone. It was Jesus himself. Jesus who went to the cross for our sins and died and was raised from the dead to prove that everything that he said was true. So here's the deal. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're thinking like these Pharisees, like if I were the Pharisees and I saw what they saw, I would believe. Those Pharisees, they're just slow. Their hearts are way harder than my heart. I just want to say this morning, I think that what the New Testament would say to you is that actually your heart is harder than theirs because you have greater material than they had to work with. We have the risen Lord. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He has died and ascended to the throne in heaven before countless eyewitness testimonies. And if we reject that testimony, then we have to have the hardest hearts ever. See, I don't think that we a lot of times realize just how hard our hearts have to be not to believe the evidence that we've been given about Jesus who literally came in the flesh and died and was raised again from the dead. Like we, we just ignore the facts. We ignore the testimonies. And we think it's okay because people tell us it's okay. Guess what? God, a voice from heaven, says it's not okay. Jesus did indeed raise, he was raised from the dead. And brother, sister, If you have not ever put your faith in Christ, what you need to know today is is that Jesus did that for you. He did it for you. So the invitation that comes from Christ today, it's still available to you. Put your faith in Christ and He will do something radical for your heart. He will exchange that hard heart for something better. But don't leave here today without putting your faith in Christ. That's our fourth point. That's this. The disciples' hearts are hard in verses 14 to 21. You can't miss the tragic irony of this little boat that Jesus and his disciples are in here in this little boat we have 12 disciples with Christ huddled around a loaf of bread and Jesus has left his ministry to Galilee and the hope of humanity really the hope of all of humanity is in this little boat they left the folks who had hard hearts and now in this little boat, and Jesus is like, okay, here we go. We're going to do this thing. It's almost like a new ark where Jesus is beginning a new humanity. He's telling them about who he is. And in the midst of this little book, as you were hoping that things are going to be different, look how this story unfolds in verses 14 to 15. He says this. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. Still talking about bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven.'" Of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, Jesus tells them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Just note, we don't have time to dwell here, but he actually lumps them together: Herod and the Pharisees. See, legalism and worldliness produce the same kinds of deadly fruit. But the meaning of the leaven here, I think, is unclear. You know, it usually represents evil. Sometimes the rapid growth of the kingdom at least one place. But here it's likely that really Jesus is just using this loaf of bread and leaven as kind of a prop to serve his greater point. He wants to teach them something spiritually and he's using this physical bread to get them there. What happens in verse 16? It tells us how effective his technique was in turning their attention from the bread to spiritual things. Here's what it says. soon as he says it, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Talk about adventures and missing the point. We're back to that. Sound familiar? I mean, Jesus tries to drag their attention towards spiritual things and they immediately start grumbling over the bread. But catch how Jesus responds in verses 17 to 21. There it says in verse 17, and Jesus aware of this, Said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? I really think all aspects describing their hard hearts. In verse 19 he says, You must have forgotten this. When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, twelve. Okay, so you do remember. And then verse 20, and then seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Now here's where Jesus brings it all together, showing how blindness, deafness, short-term memory loss, and all of these other things relate to, they are all symptoms of hard hearts. See, as they are huddled around this boat, Around a single loaf of bread, he shows them your hearts are just as hard as the people that we just left. In fact, he says, you've seen me feed 5,000 with five loaves and 4,000 with seven loaves, and you still don't get it. Here Jesus is saying, do you still not get who I am and what it means that you're with me? The disciples, they still grumble over a loaf of bread not being enough. While Jesus is sitting there saying something like, I'm like right here, right? See, Jesus is stunned by their hard hearts. See, they've forgotten who Jesus is and what he has done. And their attention on physical things has distracted them from spiritual things. The disciples' hearts are hard. See, we have problems. All these ministry opportunities in Galilee, and we have nothing but hard-hearted people. And now he's in this boat with people who've had a front row audience to everything that jesus has done and their hearts are hard too like if there's any hope in that boat it's got to be jesus it can't be them and don't miss this every human heart is a hard heart unless god does a mighty work on it and we need the miracle of a new heart That's the miracle that we need. It's not seeing a miracle out there. It's actually a miracle in here. In fact, Ezekiel 36, 26-27 speaks of this when he sees a new covenant that is to come where we are promised that people of the new covenant will actually be given new hearts. And here's what he says. And a new spirit I will put within you. God's going to put a new spirit within this new covenant, people. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you A heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you see it? Please hear me. Come in close. Every person needs that heart, and every person receives it when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. See, that's what we need. Maybe this morning, one of the problems that you've come in here with that you did not recognize that you had, uh, you came because you needed to get things fixed, but in reality, the thing that you need most is to get things broke. You came in because you thought that your life is a wreck, and you think what you want God to do is just put things back together again, when in reality, everything's broken, but your heart has never been broken before God. And this morning, the very thing that God would have for you in His deep mercy, because He loves you enough, is to break your heart so that you are ready to see Him. See, we need to long for the hammer to rescue us. See, you need to have your heart thus broken. We need for the hammer to rescue us. We so often hide our hearts so well. We are masters of disguise, hiding our hearts from God. Behind excuses, right? wasn't me, it was them. But like God, it was the circumstances that you put me in. Like all kinds of things hide our hard hearts from God, saying, God, I don't need you in the way that they need you. I'm a pretty good person. It's not me. It's this, that, or them. So our hearts are hard to God and fragile towards the sufferings of this world at the same time. It should be the other way around. But there's a last thing. Not only must we be broken, and here's the beautiful news. This is my favorite part. We need the fire. You want the fire, trust me. Here's the fire your heart must be melted with the love of the gospel. That's the fire. The gospel fire, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for you and who you are in Christ. You need that fire. See, the hammer is God's wrath, but the fire is his love. Maybe this morning you want to jump straight to the fire, but you don't want the hammer. You're not ready for the fire. You need the hammer. You need God to break your heart. You need to understand your sinfulness before a holy and righteous God. You need to see the fact that you are broken, that you are a hot mess, and that only God can fix what's happened in you. But once you've gotten to that point, you're ready to see love that you've never seen before because God comes in and he lavishes every bit of the ocean of his love into your soul and your heart in the same love that he has given to his son who he has loved eternally. See, the hammer never saves us, but it prepares us to be melted by the love of God. Some of us are so hard-hearted this morning because we've never been broken over our sin and we've never been able to sense the true warmth of the love of the gospel. So this morning, let me just encourage you. Maybe you feel like you're going through a difficult experience and, and you feel like you're broken. Let me just ask you, is it, is it God's word that's breaking you about what he has said about you and what your needs are? Or are you just broken over your circumstances? There's a better breaking that needs to happen, a spiritual one. I'm not making light of the brokenness that enters into your life from outside, but I'm telling you there's a sweet breaking that needs to happen between you and God so that you're ready for those outside breakings that come in maybe that's you this morning, or maybe this morning you just need to be reminded of the deep love of Jesus for you. That the brokenness that you've experienced is all preparing the way for the love of Christ, so that you know that you have a God who loves you forever. I hope that you've seen that this morning. Let's pray together.
0: This is for those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their lives. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. The program includes Let's Read the Bible, Praise Time, Pray Time, and Story Time. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English-speaking children. Our office number is 602-866-8999. And email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. is a program called If anyone wishes to come after me.
2: Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston, your host of the series If anyone wishes to come after me. Previously, we shared that the Holy Spirit comes to live with people who accept Jesus and have come to salvation. And when we live according to the Holy Spirit, others in the world should be convicted concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Is the world being convicted by your faithful life in accordance with the Holy Spirit? I wish it is always so. The first time, we looked at what following Jesus meant and what the payoff was. We also looked at what it meant to go all the way. We should walk away from everything to be a disciple of and to follow Jesus. However, giving up everything does not mean that we are to become unhappy about leaving these things behind. We are reluctant to give up everything and follow Jesus because we think that it's too difficult for us. But is it really so? Do you think you will be left with nothing when you leave everything and follow Jesus? I looked and found an answer in the words of Jesus. Let's read the Bible verse in Mark chapter 10, verses 28 through 30. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or farms, for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. What does the disciple Peter say about when he abandoned everything and ran after Jesus. He said that he abandoned everything. He is saying that we should abandon everything and follow Jesus. Is there any difference between the condition Jesus needs for you to follow him? No. Jesus says that anyone who followed him should deny oneself and follow Jesus, taking up his cross. To deny oneself is to deny everything. Peter said that he left everything and followed Jesus as he commanded. Peter left his home, his wife, and children, his brothers and sisters, his parents, literally everything. But what does Jesus promise to those who abandon everything to follow him? Does Jesus say that we will have nothing if we follow him? Please listen to the words of Jesus once again. Truly, I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Do you understand these words of Jesus? Can you accept his word? How could a man leave everything for Jesus and the good news receive a hundred times more than what he left behind? Does that mean that Jesus gives us a hundredfold reward if we invest a lot in the Lord as those who teach prosperity theology? Does it take money to make money? If these words of Jesus meant we would prosper in this way, no one would not abandon everything. He tells us he will give us a hundredfold reward if we leave everything. But the words of Jesus do not mean this in a worldly sense. What receiving a reward a hundredfold means is that before we knew Jesus, we lived for ourselves. We gathered a fortune for ourselves and purchased houses for ourselves. And we live for the beliefs of those who are in a blood relationship with us. We live mainly for our parents, our siblings, and our children. Therefore, people who are newly born through Jesus Christ, and who discarded everything for the gospel, are no longer living for just themselves. They are no longer gathering material things for themselves. They no longer live for those benefits. Because they died with Christ people who are dead in Christ are granted a new identity they become children of God so all the children of God are now sisters and brothers in Christ those who were separated by the blood of Christ will be a family this is how we get hundreds of parents siblings and children in this world so what about the property and material things it is the same thing Now all my personal possessions are not only mine, but everything the Heavenly Father has will also be mine. The property assets of the Heavenly Father are mine. His home is mine. Everything is mine, as I am a child of God who is the owner of everything. Of course, this does not mean I own everything to use for my own purpose, God provides everything needed for the people who live for the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Have you ever experienced this? Have you experienced that everything of our heavenly fathers is yours? Those who give up everything no longer try to collect things for themselves. That is because the property of the heavenly Father is more than we could ever collect. He who did not spare His own Son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? This is spoken in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Jesus in the Bible tells us that he who is discarding everything and following Jesus Christ does not need to worry about his life. In order to experience this, we must be determined to discard everything by faith, if you make a decision to follow Jesus, you should no longer live for yourself. The Bible tells us, "And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf," as written in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 15. For whom are you living today? Are you still living for yourself? even though you made the decision to follow Jesus? If so, pray. Pray to abandon everything and have the faith to follow Jesus. This kind of faith is not for a new believer. Faith that throws it all away to follow the Lord comes from experience, and God wants us to start letting go of the things that we are holding on to. He wants us to put down all the things that we are relying on, one by one, and he wants us to live by holding on to him alone. However, he does not want us to do this alone. He will help us first to believe in the Lord, and then he will help us to walk away from our old life. So we must pray to fully understand what it means to put down everything and trust and believe in the Lord for all things. When you put down these things that you are holding on to, you can at last experience holding on to everything in heaven. This concludes today's message in the series, If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you and your family.
0: When you come to believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and know that you will enter God's kingdom, you also realize that you cannot go through life without any hardships or conflicts. Even though we become God's children, we go through the same things that happen to the non-believers in the world. And it is right that we go through all the things that happen in the world. Does that mean that there is no difference between God's children and other people of the world? Of course not, there is a definite difference. As children of God, we change the way we look at the hardships that happen in our lives. We no longer concentrate on the bad things that happen to us, but we concentrate on God who makes those things happen. We will all go through tough times in life like Joseph or have to run away from others like David. There may be times that we have to fight for our lives But even through all those difficult times, we must always stay focused on our Almighty God. To prosper does not mean that we have everything going our way or exactly the way we plan. It means that our lives are going the way God planned. Our lives truly prosper when God is with us along the way. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to see all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week and God bless.
3: Praise to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our God and our King.